Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hey there, everybody. Welcome to episode nine of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we are digging into week eight of Lovable's companion book, and week eight is entitled The Small Gate and Narrow Road Back to Your True Self. This week, I I feel like we're getting into the most important principle and practice uh, for uh, rediscovering our true self, uh, for healing, for growing spiritually and emotionally, and it all has to do with the way that we relate to our pain. So I'm super excited to to talk with you about it this week. Before we get into it, though, a reminder, if you'd like to join the conversations that we're having on Facebook Live as we record these, um, you can join us on Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock Central Time or Chicago Time. Uh, You come to my Facebook page, which is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, uh, and at that time we'll be recording these episodes on Facebook Live. Um, There will be occasional exceptions to that, and if you want uh, either to be reminded of when to join us on Facebook Live or to be reminded of when we won't be on there so you don't show up and and find that we're not there, um, you can be sure to be signed up for my weekly newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday morning, one time a week. Uh, If you aren't subscribed to that, you can go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com and sign up in the right sidebar. Uh, You'll get the one weekly email, um, and you'll get a link to my every other week blog post. You'll get a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, uh, and you'll get a free sample of my book, Lovable. So there's lots of good stuff there. Uh, Make sure you got yourself signed up. We'd love to have you be a part of it. And, uh, and speaking of Lovable, this might be your first time hearing about it, um, or it might not be, and you might want to pick up some copies of Lovable for friends and family for the holidays. You can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com, and find out all about it. It's available in paperback, digital, and audio, wherever books are sold. So you can pick up a copy for yourself um, or share the comfort and clarity you've received from the book with friends and family this, this holiday season. Um, okay, so let's get into this episode. Uh, with no further ado, I'm really excited to share such an essential perspective with you. Uh, so let's do this, and thanks again for listening. Hello, Facebook Live. Thanks for joining us to record the ninth episode of the Lovable Podcast and to discuss week eight of Lovable's companion book, The Year of Listening, Loving, and Living. This week's chapter is entitled The Small Gate and Narrow Road Back to Your True Self. In the first six weeks of this year, we focused on practices and exercises for cultivating space and stillness in our lives. Then last week, we transitioned into focusing on how to deal with whatever thoughts and feelings might arise within you when you have more room in your life to think things and feel things. Now this week, we're going to focus on what to do when those thoughts and feelings take a very specific form. Before we transition into this next reading and practice, though, let's take just a few minutes to reflect on our practices so far. I'm curious to hear about your reactions to or experiences with any of the practices, and I'm particularly interested in your reactions to last week's practice, which involved observing our thoughts and cultivating an awareness that we are not our thoughts, but rather the observer of them. 
while you're thinking about uh, your reactions to last week's practice, I want to share um, an example of how this practice helped me in the last week. Uh, so over the course of the holiday weekend, I'm sure there were a number of triggers for it. I, my sort of my, my old intense feeling of loneliness started to return. Go thoughts go along with it. Like, um, I'm all alone. I'm on my own. I've got to do it all by myself. Um, no one's really paying attention. No one really cares. Um, those thoughts and feelings started to fill up my, my thought stream. And in the past, I would get swept away in those thoughts and feelings. Um, they would sort of, uh, sort of define my view of the entire world and all of my experiences at that point. Um, and then I would start to behave in ways that would um, isolate myself and actually contribute to my loneliness. Um, and so on Saturday, I noticed that this feeling was sort of re returning and getting a little more intense. It was actually about Saturday afternoon as I was putting up Christmas lights. Um, and so I realized I needed to, to observe. I needed to, to um, be mindful of those thoughts and feelings. And as we discussed last week, um, see them, picture them as a river and picture myself stepping out of the river, river sitting on the bank and observing them and, um, and, and being able to identify that I am not those thoughts, that that loneliness doesn't define me. Um, it might be valid. It might be real. There might be good reasons for it in the past, even good reasons for it in the present, but it's not me. That I am, I am the, the, the self doing the observing of that loneliness. Um, and, and in doing so, that feeling didn't sweep me away. Um, and then a couple things happened because I wasn't swept away and because I was observing what was going on. Um, my daughter, Caitlin, um, eight years old, voluntarily came outside and uh, started uh, decorating the tree, uh, the, the, the outdoor trees with me, just joyfully doing so. Um, and I had this suddenly not so alone. Yes, the feelings of loneliness are there, and also I'm not alone and lonely. Those two things can coexist um, because I'm not my thoughts and feelings. And then again on sun Sunday morning, um, the, the feeling was still there. I'm still practicing observing it. And uh, I'm in writing, and in comes my wife with the remainder of the coffee and says, I thought you might want the rest of this. Do you, do you want it? And suddenly not so alone again. Um, the feeling of loneliness is there, but an experience of unloneliness can also exist next to it when we're not swept away in it. Um, and so that, that for me just was a very tangible example of how I needed to observe this week in order to not get swept away in a feeling. Um, and it's mostly past uh, now, and uh, it's not, not as strong right now. So I'm going to scroll back and pick up some comments. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts as well. Deb W writes, yes, focusing on not getting swept up in thoughts was super helpful. Julie writes, reflection on practice. My recurring thought of stop fighting what is expanded to include what was and what will be. Sometimes it's because I'm noticing my thoughts. Wow, so the, 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 Julie, you've talked about how this practice of um, not trying to resist what is, which I think we discussed in week three maybe, um, has been so powerful for you. And you're expanding it now to um, try not also to resist what was or what will be. So applying that, um, that sense of openness and acceptance of the moment to not just the present moment, but to past moments and future moments. That is a, that's a really powerful way to expand it. Julie goes on, but sometimes, maybe more often, it's a feeling I notice, for lack of a better word, a sense of tightness and resistance. When I notice that, it's a chance to pause and relax and examine what's going on. 
Julie, you are anticipating today's practice already, um, that uh, we can actually begin to notice that when we have thoughts and feelings that are uncomfortable, we call them feelings because we actually feel them in our body. <laughs> and if we can locate where we are feeling that feeling in the body, then we can in a very tangible way start to approach that feeling in a very physical way. So I, I love the fact that you're already identifying that um, thoughts and feelings, when we really start to pay attention to them, we notice that they get expressed physically almost all the time. Jennifer writes, the timing of this with the holidays is great. <laughs> Jennifer, I made a note uh, for later in the podcast to mention how we might be able to apply this week's practice um, to the entire experience of the holidays because it triggers so many thoughts and feelings for all of us. Um, we're back with people oftentimes who trigger all sorts of thoughts and feelings from the past and the present. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think these practices of, of observing and moving toward what's uncomfortable um, are, are going to be pretty helpful, especially during the holidays. Deb W writes, I have found that I am more engaged with conversations, not stressing about what question I'm going to ask next and just being present in the space. So Deb W, the, um, the, the practice of observing your thoughts is cultivating a sense of presence to what's going on around you. And I, I really appreciate you uh, describing it that way because, you know, the misconception could be, well, gosh, if I'm, you know, if I'm constantly monitoring my thoughts and feelings and observing them, isn't that just sort of like navel gazing and I'm going to just become this sort of internalized, inwardly focused person. But what you're getting at is that no, that you're cultivating a sense of present to what's going on inside of you and that generalizes to being able to be present to what's outside of you. And I think that is exactly how it works. Uh, so thanks for articulating it that way. Emily writes, I have found that I'm taking people's actions less personally as I go to saying I'm enough, that their decisions are not because of something I've done. Emily, thanks for sharing that. Um, that as we begin to embrace our worthiness, the natural result is to not personalize everything that's happening around us, to realize that most of the ways that we might be being treated in ways that don't feel good uh, are probably more than anything someone else's way of trying to feel worthy or, or being concerned about their worthiness or not thinking that they're worthy enough and really not a comment at all on our own worthiness. Um, so to be able to disconnect from that and not personalize it is a powerful transition. I'm glad you're going through it, Emily. Emily writes, observing helps me respond and not react to what I'm feeling. That's right. Being responsive rather than reactive. Reactive uh, is impulsive. It, it, it uh, is instinctive. There's very little decision or choice in reaction, but responding, being responsive, means that we've cultivated this space between our thoughts and feelings and what we choose to do with them and we've been able to make a wiser decision with them. Uh, I think that's exactly how it works. Jennifer writes, found myself talking to my shame and saying things like, oh, hi, this is your moment. You are loving this, aren't you? <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that, Jennifer. You are being playful with your shame. There is nothing more disarming to it um, than being able to bring a sense of lightness and playfulness to it. Um, I almost... I mean, to me, that sounds like that sounds exactly like what grace sounds like—a lightness and a playfulness. Ah, oh, you're enjoying this moment, aren't you? You're loving this. Well, enjoy the moment because it's not going to last much longer, uh, at least not this time. If you're able to be playful um, and have some fun with it, that's so good, Jennifer. Not easy, but so good. Karen writes, "Being playful with shame, I love it. That's the uh, that's shame's kryptonite. 
it's shame's kryptonite is uh its weakness is, is playfulness it can't survive it it just can't um shame wants oh I, i'm getting emotional and i think it's because i needed to be reminded of that today right now um that shame wants you to take everything so seriously and as soon as you've called it out on that and said this isn't as serious as you're making it out to be um this isn't as inalterable and um and dire as you're making it out to be as soon as we can engage that with playfulness uh shame shame loses ground um so this conversation is reminding me of that julia writes jennifer i enjoyed the playful response too gonna borrow that yep i think uh i think jennifer that you shared a gem with us there um and one one that we all needed to hear uh so thank you and uh i'm with julie on that emily writes the playful idea also lends itself to our true self coming out our childlike playfulness emily yep thank you for connecting that thank you for connecting that the reason shame can't withstand playfulness is that playfulness is arising from our true self it's a moment in which we're reconnecting with the little one in us and that little one is saying I, I'm I'm uh, I'm big enough. I'm big enough to overcome my shame. My playfulness is all I need. I just need to hold on to that. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I, I uh, it'd be interesting to like to see. I don't know if there's there's probably never been a study done on it, but just a study to show that if you measured um, the amount of shame children are carrying, and then you observed their level of playfulness in life, I wonder if you would discover that they're inversely correlated. That as their shame goes up. The amount that they actually play begins to decrease, um, and that a way to um, to to sort of uh, respond to shame is to cultivate the the continued playfulness in children, to be able to cultivate that little one and keep that little one alive and playful, and and uh, and that connection alive. Um, I think that I think those things are probably related. Heather writes, I acknowledged I needed company this week and asked for company with friends. Just that quick meal out helped keep the lonely away, as I'm guessing how you finish that, Heather. Um, you just ask for a little bit of company. I love that. It You can't do that unless you are beginning to trust or know that you are worthy of company. Um, and that is how, as we get into these later months in which we focus on loving and finding belonging, that's exactly how it translates, is that once I've trusted that I'm worthy of belonging and company, um, my loneliness begins to dissipate because I learn the ways that I can, can be connected and, and uh, not feel so lonely. Susan writes, any hints on remembering to do this, to catch myself before getting caught up in a thought spiral? It is helpful when I do it if I don't often remember to do it. Susan, it's a great question. Hints on remembering. Um, well, I will tell you that uh, the normal part of the process is forgetting uh, and, and getting caught up in that thought stream again and remembering. In fact, you know, the first moment of mindfulness is that moment where you go, oh wait, I'm caught up in it. I need to, I need to observe again rather than being swept away in it. So that's a normal part of the experience. Um, part of what happens is it's self-reinforcing. The more you remember and you enjoy that experience of being able to pull yourself out of the thought stream and observe it and sit on that, that riverbank, um, the more reinforcing it is, the more you'll remember to do it. So that's one thing. Um, but I do think, and others might have other suggestions, there are certainly things that we can do. I mean, we can set timers on our phone 
just a one minute check-in at different points throughout the day where we know we'll have a little bit of space, just a one moment check-in to go, what's the thought stream I'm caught up in? How can I observe it right now? Just moments of practice scheduled throughout the day can be really powerful. Uh, and so we each have our own way of sort of reminding ourselves of important things. It's just adding this to that priority list and saying this is just as important as reminding myself that I need to call that doctor or I need to, um, you know, pick up milk on the way home at the store. I need to observe my thought stream. I need to remind myself to do that. That goes on the priority list. Karen writes, it's crazy how our fearful thoughts about the future, things that may never even happen, can affect our present feelings. Man. There's so much writing, um, particularly in like Eastern traditions, where mindfulness is a much uh, is sort of at the core of of practice and of life um, and of discipline. That the future is the least real thing that it, that that well, that it doesn't even exist. Um, that uh, the only thing that is real is the present moment, to a lesser extent, the past. Um, but the future hasn't happened. Those moments don't even exist, literally. Um, that space and time is non-existent, and uh, and so to become more and more aware um, that that concern about the future is thinking about something that doesn't exist, um, and that the best way uh, to get somewhere you want to be in the future is to be focused on the present moment. It's a it's a change in perspective. It's a shift, um, and it can give us so much relief. So thanks for pointing that out, Karen. Brenda writes, I just tried to observe my responses to stop reacting to others' reactions. Yeah, there you go, right? Just one person, and this is something we know from marital research, uh, when you bring couples into a lab, the most destructive uh, communication pattern is called negative escalation. Husband says something not so nice, wife says something even not nicer, husband says something. And what we know from uh, the data is that it takes only one spouse to disrupt that negative escalation. Um, and so what you're saying is, boy, uh, and increasingly we're in a world where reactions are king. Right, immediate reaction. I don't have to write a long letter and put a stamp on it and put it in the mailbox and wait three weeks for it to get there in three weeks. I can react to anything right away. So reactions and negative escalation are becoming the norm. And you're saying, as you, as a single person, can disrupt a negative escalation by deciding how you want to respond rather than reacting. It's powerful. Julia writes, Susan, seeing the thought spiral coming, it comes easier with practice. Wanting to encourage you to start where you are, disengage from thought spiral where you are. And I think you're right, Julie. Not only are you are we reinforced um, by the experience of disengaging from the thought spiral, but we get better at it. Um, and so it doesn't become such an arduous process. So the, the rewards increase and the work required for those rewards decreases. And so I do think there's that, that thing that happens over time. Um, and, uh, and the intention, the desire to do that is, is a huge starting point. Julia writes, remembering to duck out of thoughts is of profound importance. I have to keep remembering not to shame myself or being so well human about it. <laughs> so I love that, Julie, because there's grace even in that, right? Uh, so, gosh, I got caught in the thought spiral again. I forgot for two days to even attend to it. Um, to be able to say, yeah, that's about how it goes. That's what it means to be human. Um, that's the natural tendency. Um, that right away uh, is a way of uh, sort of being graceful towards oneself. And so right away now you're starting to disrupt the, the shame spiral, the thought spiral, with your very reaction to having forgotten to attend to it. So thanks for another great discussion about this, everybody. Um, I really appreciate it. And though we could keep talking, I know I'm going to start to transition us into this week's uh, topic. 
Um, and as we've been doing, I want to connect this piece of the companion book uh, back to Lovable. So for just a little bit of context, I'm going to read another small excerpt from Lovable. It's from chapter 5, uh, and chapter 5 is entitled, You Are What's Underneath Your Underneath. So I want to read that here. Um, and it actually is a, it's probably the part of Lovable where I talk most explicitly about my faith. Um, so I'm going to read that. When I was three years old, my family began attending a small evangelical church in rural Illinois. In many ways, the faith tradition of my childhood shaped me well. It scared me enough to keep me out of trouble, it gave me a bit of certainty in a chaotic world, and it gave me a reason to care about other people. But in the long run, it stopped shaping me well. The fear eventually became shame, the certainty fed my ego, and caring for people morphed into an agenda for people. Somewhere along the way, I began to lose faith in the faith of my childhood. It crumbled a little bit in young adulthood when I discovered an author named Philip Yancey. His writing made space for doubt in the midst of all my certainty. It crumbled even more when I came across the writings of a contemplative priest named Henry Nouwen, whose books helped me to exchange certainty for mystery and agendas for sincere compassion. All that remained was my shame and fear about who I was underneath the surface of me. That fear crumbled almost completely during my first decade as a psychologist. The worldview in which I was raised had taught me that human beings are all basically bad to the bone and sinful to the center. Thus, I assumed my job as a therapist was to help people get to the ugliness at the bottom of themselves so they could figure out what to do with it. But every time, every time, as we dug through the ugliness, we found beauty at the bottom instead. Without exception, going deep with my clients ended not with unmitigated darkness, but with the discovery of an inalterable holy light, a dazzling spark. My childhood faith died slowly, but the dying was okay, even necessary because a thing has to die before it can be resurrected. A faith of fear and shame and certainty and ego and agenda had to pass away in order for a faith of trust and mystery and compassion and communion to be resurrected. Death and resurrection. It's been the rhythm of my faith, and it's the rhythm I now see in the world around me, in a world that dies in winter and is resurrected in a flurry of springtime, in forests that burn down and then burst up fragile and green out of the gray ashes, in old ways of seeing ourselves that must die so a new vision of who we are can come to life. When I reflect back now on the faith of my youth, I don't necessarily consider it a wrong way to see people, so much as a shallow way. And I don't mean shallow as in conceited or ignorant or vapid. I mean shallow as in not deep enough. When we dare to look beneath the surface of our lives, we can't stop at the darkness that hides just underneath our carefully crafted facades. We have to keep looking for what's underneath our underneath. So that's the context from Lovable um, that sort of situates this week's reading and practice. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and read it this week's uh, chapter, and then we will discuss. Week 8, The Small Gate and Narrow Road, Back to Your Truest Self. A few years ago, my oldest son woke up one morning with a large lump at the base of his skull, a swollen cervical lymph node. As I felt the bump, I also felt the sharp tingle of adrenaline coursing through me. Swollen lymph nodes are scary, because they may be the doorway into an awful lot of pain and suffering. I faked calm as I called the doctor and scheduled an appointment for midday. Like most Chicago pediatric offices in the dead of winter, the wait was long with red cheeks and runny noses and listless eyes. As we waited, Aiden speculated incessantly about spider bites and allergic reactions. In the frantic activity of thoughts, analysis, and confident solutions, I knew I was witnessing my son's best attempt to keep his fear contained to a quiet place inside of him. 
As Aiden and I waited in the pediatrician's office that January afternoon, I pulled out a coin, hoping to distract him from his anxious thoughts, complicit in the game of avoidance. I was certain a little magic would do the trick. Okay, pun intended. I laid my palms face up, placing the quarter at the base of the index finger on my left hand. Then I quickly turned my hands inward, slapping them down on the table. The centrifugal force propelled the coin out of my left hand and toward my right, where I pinned it to the table as I slapped my right hand down. To the untrained eye, the quarter appeared to have traveled between hands by magic. Aiden was amazed, all lump thoughts forgotten. But true to who he is, he would settle for nothing less than a complete explanation. So I told him to watch the space between my hands, and as I performed the trick again, he exclaimed with joy, I saw it! I saw the light shine off the coin as it flew across. Our pain is like that coin. Our pain can only be glimpsed in the space between our actions and our thinking. Suddenly I understood Aiden needed to have a space to feel his pain. So we stopped, and we breathed a few times together, and then I asked him what he worried the doctor might tell him. And my so young son uttered a word I didn't even know was in his vocabulary. He said, cancer. The quiet space between all of our physical and mental activity can hurt. It can hurt so badly. We all have quiet places inside of us, and regardless of how charmed our lives have been, we exist in a broken world, and our quiet spaces have been filled with all sorts of suffering. The worry of an existence that is mostly unpredictable and out of our control, the aching loneliness we feel in a busy, distracted world, the inevitable grief of lives touched by illness and death, the anguish of betrayal, helplessness in the midst of unspeakable injustice, the shame we hide away as we compete for a sense of worthiness. No wonder we avoid our quiet places. Several months after Aiden was diagnosed with a minor infection in his lymph node, I was watching him play in a park while talking to a friend of mine. It was a glorious May evening. The new green leaves were choreographers, directing the dance of light upon a field of newly mown grass and a playground undulating with children like a beehive, all of it set to the music of kids shouting and laughing in the moment. I stood in the middle of all that glory, and my friend talked to me about healing from alcoholism. He told me that real healing in Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't happen during the 60-minute meeting. The real healing happens in the 15-minute spaces before and after a meeting. Because by arriving early and staying late, not knowing anyone, and laid open by the admission of your addiction, you have to face your own loneliness, shame, fear of rejection, and vulnerability. You have to resist the urge to act busy and self-important by flicking through your smartphone, and instead just sit there, completely open to the quiet space and how much it hurts to not belong and to risk further rejection. And of course, you have to endure all of it without taking the drink you usually take to escape it. As it turns out, the healing is in the hurting. Jesus said, Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only few find it. As you can imagine, this has been interpreted in many ways over the years, sometimes to mean that only a few people reach heaven. But I wonder if Jesus knew what my friend knows, that the only path back to our soul runs through our pain. I wonder if Jesus knew so few of us rediscover the ember of God smoldering at the center of us because we move away from our pain rather than toward it, and the holiness hidden at the heart of us lies buried beneath that pain. Jesus also once described the kingdom of God as a treasure buried in a field. Maybe he meant our souls are a treasure buried in the barren field of our life, of our pain. Are you ready to sit still, to cultivate stillness in your mind, and to watch that stillness be filled up with all the hurt of your history? Are you ready to witness all the ways you protect yourself with busyness and distraction and resentment and judgment and gossip and gripe? Are you ready to dig in the barren field of your shame for the treasure that is buried there? 
Are you ready to move toward the treasure that is you? Okay, so that's the reading for this week. Um, now that is just scratching the surface. Um, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think I can overemphasize how relearning the way that we relate to our pain can change our lives. Um, so to, like, to extend the metaphor from last week, right? So if last week we were talking about observing the river of our thoughts and feelings, now we're talking about observing them. And when we notice painful thoughts and feelings floating by, actually moving toward them rather than away from them and like dipping our hands in those waters. Uh, so this is about learning how to approach our hurt rather than spending our lives avoiding it. And that change in direction is the, I, I think is so fundamental to the healing uh, that we are wanting to do as individuals, both again, individually, collectively, um, we have to begin to learn how to approach our pain. Um, again, this is something that I've learned as a therapist, right? That um, I thought my job initially as a therapist was to help people eliminate their pain. And now I realize healing isn't about eliminating pain. Healing is about moving towards our pain being able to become familiar with it, learn from it, and decide how we want to transform it. Um, and, uh, and so this, to me, this, this idea of beginning to um, observe the pain that rises up in the midst of our quiet spaces and begin to approach it rather than move away from it. And maybe as we've discussed earlier today, even approach it playfully um, is, is so fundamental to what we're doing here. So a lot to unpack here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Julie writes, underneath the underneath, quiet spaces in between, I think the fear of pain is a lot bigger and a lot darker than the pain itself. Not to say the pain isn't real and sometimes awful. I couldn't agree with you more, Julie. Um, and this gets back to one of our earlier um, episodes where we talked about how pain is its own thing. And then our reactions to that pain, our resistance to it, our desire to avoid it and run away from it adds whole new level levels of pain to it or our fear of it as a kind of pain itself. Um, and so that is exactly what we want to begin to undo is all of the unnecessary suffering that we are adding to our painful experiences by trying to avoid it right away, you know, before you've even done anything to your pain, um, which like you said, is very, can be very real and very awful, already healing is happening because all of the, the additional suffering that we add by trying to avoid it begins to diminish um, simply by approaching our pain. And Deb writes, where the pain lives, the space inside, Jesus is there sitting with us. That's the, that, that's the, that's the whole deal, right? Um, when, I, when I hear, um, so, you know, and it's a, common, it's a common refrain, I feel disconnected from God. Um, I don't feel a sense of God's presence. Um, one of my first questions is, how much time have you spent waiting through your pain to get to God? Uh, because that is my experience, that our true self, that God waits for us, um, that our, our soul can be found uh, sort of on the other side of that pain. If, you know, if you want to use a metaphor, maybe our pain is a shell on, on, the, um, on, on what's on the soul that is inside of us. So we have to go through that. Um, and so if we're constantly moving away from it, we are moving away from our true self. We're moving away from God. We're moving away from our sense of worthiness. We're moving away from our soul. Um, we have to move towards it and through it. And the getting through it to everything else that is underneath it or on the other side of it, that accomplishes an awful lot of what we would call healing. 
Deb F. writes, Kelly, I find when I face the pain, it eventually no longer has as much of a hold on me. I find myself getting lighter in spirit. Deb F., I think, I think that's a great way to say it. Lighter in spirit, or in a, in a way you could say, I am re- then reconnected with my spirit. I've moved through my pain and been able to reconnect with my soul, and there's a natural lightness when I'm in that place. When my, when my, when my being is centered in my true self or my soul, there's going to be a natural lightness to it. So you've gone through your pain and been able to reconnect with that that part of you at the center of you, the underneath, your underneath. Brenda writes, emotions, sigh, selah, I can relate to this one. <laughs> Brenda, I hope you know you're not alone. Um, you know, I, 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 I've got so much I could say about this, it's almost hard to figure out how to, to contain it. Um, one of the more common things that I run into in my therapy practice is when I ask someone what they're feeling, they say, I don't feel anything. And so one of the ways I try to reframe that is actually you, you do feel anything. You do, you do have feelings. There's, you have a ton of feelings. Everyone does. They're in there, but you've become disconnected from them. So it's not that you don't have feelings. It's that we have to figure out a way to move towards them and to become familiar with them again. Um, but it's so tempting you know, is it Richard Rohr or Gregory Boyle or someone else who said, if we don't transform our pain, we'll transmit it. So, so much of what we do is we, we take that, those emotions, those painful emotions, and we sort of, we sort of project them, transfer them onto somebody else. You know, a lot of what you see, I mean, gosh, these days, a lot of what you see on Facebook, everybody's angry at each other on Facebook, um, or angry at something. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it would be a really good practice to say, um, before I express anger on Facebook, who who's the loved one I'm really angry at? Because I'm probably going to project some of that onto somebody else at this moment. So again, how do I move towards that anger, towards the hurt in my actual day-to-day life, um, and learn how to move through that rather than transmitting all that anger and pushing it out all into the world? Um, so it's so fundamental to healing not only ourselves as individuals, um, but healing our conversations, healing our civic dialogue, healing the way we relate in communities. It's just so fundamental. Elizabeth writes, I find I kind of grieve my old faith as it changes, while also realizing I probably am better off as it changes, although it doesn't always feel that way. Um, Richard Rohr, I think, again, says that as our, as our faith sort of transitions and evolves, um, the, the marker, the, the sign that it's truly evolving is that your as your faith evolves, it, it, it may transcend, but it includes your previous um, experiences of faith. So in other words, you can, I can say, I needed those. I needed those experiences as a kid. Those are exactly the kinds of things I needed. If someone had, had presented to me a faith that was full of mystery and uncertainty as a kid, I mean, horrifying. I needed structure. I needed some, some basic certainty. And so I find that where I'm at now, um, you know, um, there's some there's some grieving of it, um, and some of the experiences associated with it. But I can also incorporate it and say that's part part of where I'm at now, and so it's not gone completely. Um, it's just it, it was part of the journey. Deb F writes, "Yes, I have discovered that avoidance to at least acknowledging the pain becomes more painful in the long run and sucks more energy out of me." So a consistent theme today, that that resistance to pain, the trying to move away from it. Um, is sometimes as painful, if not more painful, than the pain itself. Um, and I'd say as a, as a therapist, that's a, a very common experience for me as well.
Teresa writes, I have been learning that focusing more on painful things in light of eternity helps me to reassess how much I give in to the pain. I almost have a feeling that I am separate from my pain. And I can't read the rest of your comment, Teresa, um, but it sounds like that idea of relating to your pain um, from, from a larger perspective gives you an objectivity and a sense of disconnection from it in a way, in, in the same sense that sort of climbing out of the river um, and sitting on the bank gives us a sense of distance that we are not our pain it is not the whole truth about us. Um, that being able to kind of think of that for you in the context of eternity helps you do the same thing. Um, and th these practices are so much about sort of taking in the ideas and adopting them and, and, and fitting them to the, the, the practices that are most helpful for you. So it's a, it's a good adjustment. Julie writes, Deb W, Mother Teresa was once asked what she says when she prays, and she said she just listens. The reporter asked what God says, and she said he just listens too. Man, Mother Teresa, so good. I'm not going to add anything to that. My, that's a Mother Teresa mic drop is what that is. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Donna writes, physical weariness can sure contribute to these feelings. I found that as well as worry about the things I know, not just anticipating, are going to happen are what wants to try to drag me down. Yeah, Donna, the physical weariness is so foundational. And I think it was in week two or three, we, we sort of, and, and you want to you wanna remember that these practices are sort of uh, wanting to, to be integrated together so that when we move to week eight, we don't stop week two, right? So we continue to rest because it requires physical energy to bring the kind of mindfulness and patience to our feelings that we need in order to approach them. So that is a, a valuable reminder from, from earlier in these weeks. Deb F. writes, Kelly, it makes sense to me that as we grow and become mature, our understanding of God should evolve. We don't start off life eating steak. Ah, that's good. I know, right? Everything else in life evolves and grows and develops. Why shouldn't that? All right, so let's take a little bit of a break in our discussion, and uh, let's translate these ideas now into a more tangible practice for this week. I'll read this week's exercise, and then we can discuss it from there. Week 8 Practice Several years ago, not too long after the morning of the lump, Aiden pulled the television down on his leg. By the way, he pulled it down about five minutes after his mom left for the airport. <laughs> it was just chaos. Um, okay, Aiden pulled the television down on his leg. The stand scraped along his ankle, pulling off a layer of flesh about four inches long. It was gruesome, but the prospect of taking his first shower after the injury was even more gruesome. As the hot water began to wash over the wound, he cried out in agony, and I asked him to trust me. I asked him to do five things. Number one, first, begin breathing slowly and deeply. By deeply, I don't mean big. I mean taking a normal amount of air deep into your lungs. It will feel like your stomach is filling with air. Number two, now start taking the air in through your nose and slowly begin breathing it out through your mouth. Pretend you're blowing off soup on a spoon. Pay attention to the breath. When you have developed a rhythm, number three, on your next breath, focus on your pain. Feel it fully and imagine breathing the air directly into your pain, filling the pain with your breath. Number four, then imagine slowly blowing the pain out through your mouth. Number five, finally, continue doing this until you are completely comfortable feeling the pain. At first, Aiden refused. The idea of focusing on his pain seemed crazy, but finally he agreed, and after several iterations, breathing into the pain and then blowing it out, 
he visibly relaxed. He opened his eyes, smiled, and said, hey, it worked. Ain's pain had not changed, but he had discovered he could approach it, walk through it, and he didn't need to be afraid of it anymore. We can approach our psychological pain in the same way, and I'm asking you to trust me on this. Our feelings are called feelings for a reason. We feel our thoughts in our bodies. Sometimes they're expressed through a headache, or a weight on our chest, or muscle pain, or stomach cramps, and so on. We can approach this pain, breathe into it, and learn that our pain is something we live through, not something to avoid. Feelings come at us like waves on the shore. When they are crashing, they can feel overwhelming, but if we can stay present to them, we also get to watch them recede and enjoy the calm between the waves. During this week and future weeks, if your stillness creates the space for you to notice your pain in the form of any thought, feeling, or memory, take note of where in your body you experience the discomfort and pain of those experiences. Then, using the practice I walked through with Aiden, breathe your way into your pain. As you do, you'll also be breathing your way toward your truest self. So this is uh, a very small example. The practice is very focused. Um, it's very tangible. Um, but it is symbolic of a shift in our way of thinking and relating to our pain. And I believe that if we can, can practice in small ways that shift, that shift will actually begin to, to happen in our entire approach to pain. Um, to the, the power, the power of learning that I no longer need to be afraid of my pain. That when pain comes, I can approach it, I can learn from it, I can move through it, um, I will feel more resilient, um, and I will feel... Um, more transformed by it um, on the other side of it, it's, it's, a, it's a game changer. I had uh, someone who is a blogger reach out to me uh, a couple weeks ago and tell me about this horrible experience that happened to them. And she said, but right away I started to think, boy, what could I write about this? Now there you've got somebody who's completely changed the way she relates to her pain, right? She now, when something painful happens, immediately goes, how can this be redeemed um, by my writing about it? Um, it's, it, it, it takes the power out of the pain. Um, and again, it's not to say that some pain isn't huge and uh, that it doesn't take an awful lot of work to move towards it and through it, but um, I think the principle applies. One of the ways that you can sort of ease into the practice probably would be um, to make a list of the ways that you feel sadness in your body, the ways that you feel fear in your body, and the ways that you feel anger in your body. So for instance, some people uh, feel sadness as a tight, or uh, fear rather, anxiety as a tightness in their chest, whereas sadness is a pressure behind the eyes, um, and anger is almost like a adrenaline rush, dizzy feeling in their head. Locating that place where you experience that emotion um, when it's happening, and beginning to take the you know, breathe the air in and visualize it entering that place. You're now visualizing yourself approaching that particular emotion in your body. So it might be a good way just to sort of do a self-inventory and, and remind yourself where you experience those things. Deb F. writes, First, I acknowledge that it is painful. Then I say to myself, This will not kill me. And eventually I get to what is the lesson here. But that part takes time. Deb F., that's grace for all of us uh, to be reminded that this is not a quick solution. This is a, a, a practice that slowly begins to alter the way we relate to our pain 
And then as we slowly begin to alter it, then we slowly begin to trust the process um, that, that it actually can um, be transformative in a way, but we can't rush to get there. We have to be patient with ourselves. So thanks for that grace. Hannah writes, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. My favorite line from you too. Yeah. Oh man, there's, when you sit down with U2's lyrics over the last 30 years, there's some, there's some good stuff in there. Okay, so I think this is a good place to wrap up this week's discussion. Uh, next week, we'll continue to build upon these ideas and this practice as we get into week nine of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, What to Do When Your Heart Feels Like a Jungle. We're going to talk about how as we move toward our pain and sort out the messy experiences we feel inside, we can invite someone else into the process with us, if need be because cleaning up is always better when you're not doing it alone. Until then, remember you can breathe into your pain, through it, and all the way into your true self. Thanks again for joining us on The Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.